benvenuti al Christian Podcast. Yo, what's up my friends? Welcome to Christian Podcast live. Yes, we're live. We're on Facebook on our page and I'm your host Beto Gudiño. I bring you weekly God thinkers to talk about matters of Christianity and culture through the lens of emoji reactions that range from blasphemous to divine. So, do you want to grow in your spiritual relationship with Jesus? This podcast And more resources are available on the Palm Harvest app, which is available to download for free at hellopastormike.com. That's hellopastormike.com. Download it now for free. It has weekly sermons, prayer and meditation podcasts, this podcast, and many more. So my friends, today on the show, we have Professor of New Testament and coordinator of Gender Studies program at Westmont College, Karen A. Reeder, and we're going to talk about sex and Me Too and Church Too and the Samaritan Woman Too. Karen, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me here. Awesome. I'm so excited for this conversation. I have your book right here in my hands. So why don't we start, you start us off with, tell us a little bit of who you are and a little bit of what you do. Yeah, so I am a New Testament professor. That means I teach a lot of undergraduate students how to read the New Testament, where it came from, um, who the heck Jesus and Paul are. Some of my students have never opened the New Testament before, so it's always an exciting adventure. Um, I also do a lot of research and writing um, on things that I'm interested in, questions that I think are really important that haven't been addressed very well. And one of those questions is women and sex and the church and how do we read scripture with those parameters in mind. Wow. Okay, that sounds super amazing and interesting. So Karen, this is what I do on the show to get us kicked off. Okay, so I have your book right here in my hands, and it says The Samaritan Woman's Story, Reconsidering John 4 after hashtag Church 2. And then it has a picture of, I would say it's the Samaritan woman. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about the book. But first, I want to offer my emoji reaction to the book. And for that, I'll let you on on my virtual background just so you can see my emojis. <laughs> so I have five emojis and then I'm just going to ask the gods of Emojitron what is the emoji reaction we should have for this book are you ready yes I'm excited to see okay so we're going to the emoji tombola reveal the emoji and it's a holy emoji reaction holy emoji reaction to the book so karen first of all how do you feel about getting a holy emoji reaction to this book i feel good about 
this. I feel like I could reward myself with some chocolate later. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there, this is like the equivalent of getting an Oscar yeah, for an excellent. actor. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, so glad you're on the show. Um, let's start. Let's start with a simple question, just to kick us off. See how we feel about this. Is Jesus racist? Oh, a simple question, did you say? <laughs> <laughs> oh, golly. <laughs> you know, I think in this story, we certainly see some tensions, right, between uh, in John 4, the story of Jesus in the Samaritan village talking to the Samaritan woman. It is a story that is surrounded by the question of the racial tensions between the Samaritans and the Jews. And I certainly think that the story has been read in a way that can make Jesus seem very racist, bringing his Jewish superiority into the Samaritan village and forcing this woman to recognize his superiority. He says salvation comes from the Jews after all. Um, but in the end of the story, the message turns out to be one of reconciliation, of um, Jesus saying, actually, it's not the Jews who are the people of God. It's also not the Samaritans. There's a new way to be the people of God that welcomes both Jews and Samaritans. Um, is Jesus a racist? He certainly, in some stories in the New Testament, reflects some of the racial tensions of his day. Yeah, <laughs> but also the message of the gospel is one of reconciliation and justice for all people. So, mm -hmm. so we'll leave it at maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's great. We're, we're almost like starting with blasphemous right there. So, uh, okay, so I have, I have like three main ideas for this episode. So one of them would be, can you walk us through the Samaritan woman's story? Then from there, we'll move on to a little bit of the uh, Me Too movement, what mm -hmm. it means, what it still is, what it's not maybe, and then to the Church Too movement. So first of all, can you walk us through a little bit of the Samaritan woman's story as we read it in John chapter four. Yeah, for sure. So here's how I read the Samaritan woman's story. We've got Jesus going home to Galilee after being in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, which was the great festival celebrating God, saving the people of God from enslavement in Egypt. Um, on the way, he passes through Samaria, which was something that not all Jews would choose to do. So many Jews chose to go around Samaria rather than through Samaria just to avoid any potential dangerous interactions or awkward interactions with the Samaritans. But Jesus goes through Samaria. He sits down by a well that happens to be a really important place, right? So this well is the well of Jacob that Jacob dug when he and his sons lived in this land. Um, that has resonance for the Jewish story of the Old Testament, because this is sort of the first little piece of the promised land that God's people owned and lived on. Um, but now the Samaritans live there, and the Samaritans also claim to be descendants of Jacob and also claim to be the true people of God. So you can see in the setting of the story, there's some tensions being introduced. Uh, we're being reminded that Jews and Samaritans don't get along, as the story tells us. 
In this space, Jesus meets a woman who's come out to draw water for her household use. He starts talking to her, and right away we get those racial tensions introduced. The Samaritan woman says, why are you even talking to me? You're Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. We don't we don't hang out together. We don't do things together. So we're reminded of those um, identity issues, those identity questions. Um, through their course of their conversation, Jesus slowly reveals himself to the woman. She slowly comes to a recognition of who he is. Um, it's important to note that this is the longest conversation Jesus has with anyone in John's gospel. Usually he starts talking to someone and then it turns into a long sermon from Jesus. But in this story, the Samaritan woman is really an active participant and contributes a lot. She moves the conversation on. Um, at the end of the story, she has realized that Jesus is a prophet who can answer the burning question of the day of this divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. Um, she receives a revelation of Jesus' own identity. He tells her, I am. And of course, later in John's gospel, that I am, um, before Abraham was, I am, is the revelation that Jesus is God. <laughs> and the Samaritan woman is the first person to hear Jesus say, I am, in the gospel. So that's pretty important. And then she runs back to her village where all of her neighbors listen to her, respect her, and believe in Jesus because of her testimony. So she is in John's gospel, an ideal disciple, someone who comes to recognize who Jesus is and then shares it with others, witnesses to him, um, to his identity to others. So um, a model for all of us to follow, I think. Wow. So <laughs> where where is the where is the sex in the story? Yeah, because <laughs> that's all that we ever hear in the church, right? <laughs> uh, if you go all the way back to the earliest interpretation recorded that we have of the story, Tertullian in the late second, early third century, he's already referring to the Samaritan woman as an adulterer and a prostitute. And that just echoes through the centuries. Um, when this story is taught in the church, it almost always focuses in on sex. Um, in the story, it comes from the fact that Jesus reveals the woman's marital history to her. And that I would argue that that is part of the woman coming to understand who Jesus is. So because he knows something about her, she can recognize that he's a prophet and possibly also the Messiah. But her marital history is unusual. She's had five husbands. She's now got a man to whom she is not married, but with whom she's living um, in a marital-like relationship. Um, and that seems a bit scandalous, <laughs> we might say. And that is why the way that the story is told in the church has almost always focused in on the woman as a sexual sinner. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what is it? Was she regarded as a sexual sinner because of the revelation Jesus makes almost like a, I mean, it almost sounds like, are you a magician or how do you think Jesus knew her background? Mm. Is it because he is God and, or is it because, you know, maybe he knew her story prior to yeah. this or where do you think that yeah. comes from? Yeah. I don't, we don't have a sense that he would have known her story beforehand. He doesn't seem to have been a place he'd been before. He was a newcomer. And 
her story is so unusual. It is very, very rare to find anyone with so many marriages in the ancient world. Um, so it's not something you could have just randomly guessed about someone either. But this is a pattern in John's gospel that Jesus will know something about someone that he could not possibly have known as part of the process of these people um, coming to recognize that Jesus is something special. So I think the woman's response when Jesus says, oh, you have had five husbands and now the man you have is not your husband her response is immediately, oh, you're a prophet. And I think she's picking up on what we're supposed to understand about Jesus' special insight into people's lives that he has, um, he's operating under different, different guidelines than the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's the interaction. So from your vantage point, it seems like there is not necessarily a sexual scene, even though do you would you say there is some sort of like morality morality uh, issue going on that Jesus addresses, or would you say that's not even the case? I think it's not even the case. So I think that when we bring in questions of morality here, we're really reflecting a more modern understanding of marriage. Um, and maybe not understanding entirely what this woman's situation might have been in the first century. So if you go back to the first century, people did not get married in order to have a relationship with their best friend. People did not get married to create a family and have a loving supportive um, marriage with someone. They got married for really practical purposes. So it was an economic and financial transaction between two households. Um, women in particular had real importance as um, ways to connect a family with economic resources, political resources, social status. Um, so the woman the Samaritan woman probably got married the first time between the ages of maybe 12 and 15. She would have married someone who was maybe 10 years older than her, possibly even older than that. So there's a big age gap between men and women at their first marriages. Um, her marriage would have been arranged by her family, by her father. Um, And her husband's marriage was also arranged by his household, right? So it's not even sort of a Romeo and Juliet situation. It's really um, two households making this arrangement between them. We don't know why her marriage has ended. Um, it's very possible that her husband's died because of war, because of injury, because of illness. Um, it's also possible that she was divorced one or more times And that is not necessarily because she did something wrong. In fact, if she had done something wrong, it's less likely that she would have gotten remarried so many times because she would have been seen as a dangerous, dangerous alliance to make. So she could have gotten divorced because either her family or her husband's family wanted to make a better alliance with someone else. Or perhaps there were other reasons at play we just don't know about. Um, and even living with a man to whom she's not married, that was not necessarily immoral either in the first century, because actually there were really strict laws regulating who could get married 
So enslaved people were not given the legal right to marry. Um, Roman soldiers were not given the legal right to marry. Roman citizens could not marry a non-citizen. Jewish and Samaritan priests could only marry women from priestly families. So that really limits who you can marry um, with Mm. that legal legal right. Um, and so possibly the woman had made an alliance with someone to whom she could not legally marry, but was nonetheless really useful and important for her family. Yeah. So she's had a tragic life, I would say, um, just based on the number of marriages that she's had. This is a, we're seeing a woman who has persisted through lots of difficulties in her life. Um, but she's persisted and she's not being shamed for her action. Mm. Okay. Wow. That's <laughs> incredible. There's a lot right there. And my mind is like going in like a hundred yeah. <laughs> different directions. Uh, but one of them would be, she is not an American woman for sure. No, no, <laughs> right? no she's definitely not. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, the difference between a Samaritan woman 2,000 years ago to an American woman 2,000 years later is abysmal. And that's incredible. And that's even why I was kind of like playing upon the title of Samaritan woman, Stay Away From Me. Yeah, uh, right. (laughs) I think, you know, the Lenny Kravitz song, if anybody remembers that. Um, I'm aging myself, too, right here. But, uh, okay, so how is that? Let's let's try to move from there to the me too before mm-hmm. we go to church too. So how is that relate or tell us just let's just start right there. What is the me too movement and then mm-hmm. we'll move on on to how is that related to this story? Yeah, yeah, so the me too movement it's um was originally proposed by an activist named Tarana Burke um a long time ago, but it really took off in the fall of 2017 as actresses, and then it filtered out to waitresses, hotel workers, um, politicians, and just across the country, across the globe, actually. Um, Women were using the MeToo hashtag to report their experiences of harassment and assault and rape um, that had gone ignored for way too long. Um, I would say... Maybe we could just move on to church too now, if that's okay as well, and get it all. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the church too movement, um, it didn't take too long when the Me Too movement really took off. Um, that women in the church started reporting their own stories of harassment and assault, um, of sexual grooming by respected pastors, by youth leaders, um, and so that those women and some men as well started using the hashtag church to, to share their own stories. And it's been heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking and devastating to read these stories, to, um, yeah, recognize the way that spiritual authority in the church has not always been used well that sometimes it has been used in ways that hurt and abuse um, vulnerable people in our churches. Okay. So that's, that's what me too and church too, uh, where they kind of come together after Mm -hmm. this uh, activist started, people started Mm -hmm. coming out with their own uh, hurtful uh, stories 
mm-hmm. of abuse. Mm-hmm. Can you can you tell us maybe like one or two stories that you know grappled your attention the most, and mm-hmm. uh, maybe why those are important to you? I mean, of course, on the Me Too and Church Two movement, but um, just or one or two stories. Just tell me, hit me with the truth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So if you um, search Twitter or other social media sites for the hashtag church too, you come up with so many stories, so many women sharing their experiences, a couple that have lingered with me. Um, one woman who was a, um, uh, in seminary. So she was training to be a pastor. She was doing an internship at a church and an older male pastor used to come up behind her and just put his hands on her, touch her hair, um, and make comments. And I think, okay, that didn't progress beyond sort of that initial contact, um, but it could have. And that expresses an experience that I think a lot of women have probably had in the church of people touching them in uncomfortable ways, um, of men touching them in uncomfortable ways. Um, so the reports on the church to experiences run from the prosaic like that to the really horrifying accounts of women who, um, one woman in particular, um, had a close relationship with her youth pastor and her youth pastor would have, you know, intensive conversations with her and one night driving her home, um, he stopped the car and assaulted her. Um, and that left her, you know, knowing, not knowing what to do, what to, how do you deal with that experience when you're in youth group, when you're a teenager and your youth pastor assaults you? Um, she reported it to the lead pastor at her church, um, who then accused her of misleading the youth pastor, um, that nothing happened to the youth pastor in that immediate situation. He was not even reprimanded. Um, there's a tendency in when allegations of assault are brought forward in the church, there's a definitely a long tendency of victim blaming and women are made to feel ashamed for their own bodies, for the way they dress, even if it's a very conservative dressing style, they've done something wrong that has tempted a man to sin. And so it's their fault, not the pastor's fault or the youth leader's fault or the friend's fault. Um, Yeah. So those experiences, they just resonate across the board. There are so many different stories like this. Uh, certainly from a lot of American churches, um, but also churches beyond the United States. So this is not just a North American problem. Wow. Yes, Mm -hmm. that's right. And so I'm going to tell you, I mean, those are horrifying stories. And for sure, I mean, let's, let's listen, you know, even my wife, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to, I'm going to say something super personal, but even my wife, when this was going on, you know, she, she hashtagged me too. And I was like, what the heck? Um, Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, but I guess to me, it was like, wow, we got to we got to listen and we got to believe. Right. So that's that's one call. But so the other one is I'm going to tell you a story from my own country. I'm from Mexico. Mm -hmm. I grew Mm -hmm. up in Guadalajara. Mm -hmm. So it's the second largest city in Mexico with like, I don't know, 15 million inhabitants is massive it's it's a beautiful city Mm -hmm. uh but nonetheless mexicans we're super used 
to hugging people, to kissing people. Uh, so, for example, when when I would meet anyone in Mexico, even you know a woman. I mean, mostly a woman, right? Argentinians are a little different because they kiss men. Men kiss men to say hi. I have a lot of friends like that, and you know, when I meet them, they're like, "Come here, yes. che, come here." I'm like, "No, no, no, no! Oh, come on, just do it." And now so I'm like, "Okay, whatever." So they abused me. Mm-hmm. Nah, I'm kidding. No, but in all honesty, um, in Mexico, sometimes uh, we're so used to to doing this, right? Like hugging and kissing and whatnot. So to me, it's like where the where is the fine line, the division mm-hmm. line between mm-hmm. okay, that's that's a friendly hug, that's a friendly kiss, to women start to feel uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Of course, mm-hmm. it has to do with men's uh, motives, I would mm-hmm. assume, mm-hmm. but. I mean, where would you draw the line where where this mm-hmm. comes up? Where would you say, okay, let's would you even even no? I I wanted to talk about the Billy Graham rule. So mm, would yeah. you even say, okay, let's just not touch women at all. Let's just not kiss women at all. Let's just not be in the same car with a woman mm-hmm. <laughs> no. at all. I mean, where where would you draw the line, Karen? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right that it is so important to recognize different cultural expectations and how those operate. I lived for a while for several years in Jerusalem. And there, again, the Palestinian culture is very touchy feely. Um, And so I got very used to lots of kissing, lots of hugging. Um, And that never felt like harassment to me, certainly. And I would say in my church now, if... um, if one of my fellow worshipers came up and hugged me, uh, that would not feel like assault or harassment to me. I think where it crosses the line is where, um, first of all, if it's someone you don't know, if it's someone who you don't have a personal relationship with, then that's problematic. I think if the hugging goes on for too long, or if hands wander to parts of the body where you wouldn't normally be touching during a hug, I think that's problematic. And I think as well, you're right that there's an issue of motivation and what, what is the reason for this? Is it to express friendship, fellowship, um, or are other things happening? Um, it does it go along with comments that are being made about, a woman's body or appearance? Um, Does it go along with other comments that might not really fit with the context of a worshiping community? Um, Yeah, so I think it is tricky. And I definitely do not want to say that we should stop hugging or stop touching or stop, um, stop kissing each other. If that's our cultural context. Um, I think the Billy Graham rule has done a lot of harm to women in the church actually, because it means that women don't get mentored and encouraged to explore leadership options, um, because they don't have men taking on that responsibility. And I think that there's also an issue there of I would say with the Billy Graham rule, um, it picks up on some of that victim blaming that um, a woman is going to tempt a man to sexual sin, even if they're just having dinner together or talking together in an office. Um, Maybe we need to reverse that and say, what is the man doing to control his own interests, his own um, thoughts, um, 
Because that's exactly what the New Testament says, right? It's not um, the stumbling block is the woman who causes you to sin. You are the stumbling block if you are looking at someone else with lust rather than with a true interest and love for them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's true. That's what the New Testament <laughs> says. And I think, mm -hmm. yeah, that's exactly what I think Jesus was referring to when he said, mm -hmm. you know, if if your hand causes you to sin, pluck out it. No, I mean, cut it out yeah. or pluck out your eye. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. OK. So, well, were you going to say something? No, I was just going to say, yeah, it's not um, get rid of the woman, but mm. <laughs> get rid of your own body parts. <laughs> mm. Yeah. OK. So when it comes to the let's stay on the Billy Graham rule for a little bit. So that strikes me. It's interesting because I feel I'm, I'm married, right? So I have a wife. We've been married for like 14 years, I think. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Because we never celebrate our anniversary. We should start doing that uh, soon. <laughs> But anyways, um, I guess to me, I feel like it would come down, you know, to our personal agreement as husband and wife. Like if mm. we had a ministry in which she would feel more comfortable by me saying, hey, you know what? I'm never going to be with a woman alone, not even in a car, not even anywhere. But if that's our agreement with mm -hmm. my wife, I feel like, okay, um, that would be, that sounds fair to me, mm. right? Mm -hmm. But so do you think, do you think it, it comes down to like the particularities of, of everyone's case or do you think there could be something along the lines of the Billy Graham rule that could be helpful as a, mm -hmm. as an outline for everybody to say, Hey, you know, let's do this. Or, or is that not the case? Uh, yeah, I certainly think that it's good to have clear expectations um, for a marriage or for the way a church operates as well. Right. So having meetings in public spaces rather than in private spaces, that could be a good ground rule to say that you won't have, and I don't even think it necessarily has to be between male and female because we know that men are also abused in church contexts. So could we say we'll have our pastor's office has glass windows on the door so that you're never um, completely private with someone else? Um, is it possible that you can meet in spaces where you can still have a private conversation, but be in public view and realize that, um, that others are keeping an eye out and we're all keeping an eye out on each other to make sure that no one is put in a vulnerable position. Um, yeah. Okay. So that's, that's so good. So I'm going to tell you a story out of uh, my own experience in this church. So I agree with what you were saying. It, it not only happens in America, it has happened mm -hmm. in everywhere, right? I guess we're mm -hmm. just humans and it happens. So I'll tell you the story and then I want to move on to a more personal story. But this story is one of the churches I grew up in in Mexico. Uh, that happened, you know, the, one of the leaders, mm -hmm. pastors of the church ended up committing uh, some sort of abuse towards a little girl. And I mean, that's that's just horrendous. And for sure, you know, I I don't even know what to say to those persons who were the victims yeah. of this abuse, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, what I do know is that a lot of times it ends up in in such a hurt that they end up like 
falling away or moving away mm -hmm. from the faith mm -hmm. altogether, right? And saying, mm -hmm. I don't want anything to do with church, even yeah. being against yeah. the church, even, you know, some of them have become feminist and say, you know, I, I want to stand up for my own right as a woman. I don't almost mm -hmm. like to the point of like, I don't care about men anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. how do you feel about that, that uh, reactive uh, element of women almost like swinging on the pendulum all the way to mm -hmm. the opposite. I mean, rightfully mm -hmm. so, but how does that make mm -hmm. you feel? Especially as yeah. a person that, that, no, you're you're kind of like into theology and faith and the Bible too, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely understand why someone would, would make that decision. I think there's your um, basic trust in, in the church um, has been broken and that can mean your trust in God has been broken too. Why has God, God not protected the victim in this case? Um, I think that it's a really, it's a natural reaction to have to want to leave that community to not be part of anything like that again. Um, it also, as a New Testament scholar, as someone who is committed to the church really hurts me to know that that's the reaction that so many women have um, as much as I understand it. And as much as I want to say to any woman or man who has been victimized in these ways, um, do what you need to do for your own healing. Um, it's a long process to heal from sexual trauma. Um, but I also want to say we need to do better as the church to make the church a safe space in the first place, but also to address the ways that we have failed as the body of Christ um, and to do better, um, do better in our structures, do better in counseling, do better in having reporting structures so that when people do feel that they've been victimized in particular ways, they can report that and it can be heard and understood. Um, that's just been too often that church communities have ignored allegations or rejected allegations um, in order to protect the institution rather than the individual. And we need to do better. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's true. I feel like that, that is the, uh, oof, it's like the hard part, you know, that people mm -hmm. want to almost like cover it uh, yes. for the sake yes. of, you, you just said it right for the sake of the institution So mm -hmm. that is that is shameful. Mm -hmm. That is horrendous to think about. And so, okay, let me. I want to bring this to almost like a more personal level, and see if it can be helpful for people for people listening. So, uh, when I think of just the relationship, you know, you're you're into gender studies. So mm -hmm. the relationship between a man and a woman as species, you know, as humans throughout the eras is like, um, I don't know if you ever heard of this woman named Dr. Laura, but she mm -hmm. was uh, almost like a famous radio host and she would take in calls from listeners and they would you know, have any question about their relationship and with their spouse or things like that, right? And a lot of her responses tended to be along the lines of uh, when it came to sex, right? It was usually, hey, men want to have a lot of sex, Women, just not so much, maybe once a year or something like that. Uh, and then she would say, she would kind of help him out, you know, okay, what's the situation? Give me the scenario. 
and then almost like this is what you got to do right and she was mm -hmm. I mean, massive you know on the radio mm -hmm. well uh listen to so when it comes to those maybe assumptions about sexuality i feel like one is i i feel i personally feel like we have the wrong assumption first that sex is sin or sex is bad some of us a lot of us i would say and especially maybe within the church, even though luckily mm -hmm. I feel like in my church in Mexico was super helpful in like, mm -hmm. we got to tackle this. Like we, we want to teach you about sex here in church rather mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. from you to learn it from somebody in the street. Right. Yeah. Uh, so it was super helpful, at least that they were open about that, you know, and this is kind of like in my teens and early twenties. Mm -hmm. So super helpful. But at the same time, like this assumption of, Uh, like the expectations that you were mentioning on mm -hmm. sex, you know. So when it comes to almost that uh, that desire, you know, is it if it's true that men typically want to have sex all the time and women not so much because the, our wiring is different and that's where I feel like that any psychologist or sociologist could agree. Like, yes, women and men are wired differently for mm -hmm. the most part. You know, I'm sure... There can be other case scenarios uh, that are minimal. But for the most part, I think it's safe to say, yes, that is the case. So with that as our base, uh, what would be helpful to help us in those? Re like, how can you help us, as Dr. Lorda did, to say uh, how to help the relationship between men and women When it comes to sex, like what is helpful to talk about? Do you have any ideas, suggestions? I don't know if it gets too personal, but <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know if I can. I'm just a New Testament scholar, so I don't know if I have any great insight to offer. I think one issue that I come back to over and over when I'm talking to students or to others about these questions um, we get really obsessed with sex in the church and certainly from the second century to the 21st century, the church has had a real discomfort with sex. And it, particularly in the early church, sex was just seen as a problem that something sexual intercourse, even in a marriage was, um, spiritually problematic in that it weakened your Christian discipline. And so you should try and avoid it as much as possible. Try to control your sexual impulses. Um, I think you're right that that's totally changing in the modern church. So now we tend to see sex celebrated more in terms of marital love and relationship. And, um, and I think that's a really healthy shift in the way the church has responded to sexuality. Um, At the same time, I think that we sometimes miss some of the important messages in the New Testament about sex. And I particularly come back pretty often to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 and 7 as well. Uh, Paul sometimes has a reputation as someone who is anti-sex. I don't think that's true. I think he actually celebrates sex between married couples in 1 Corinthians 7. But he is against using someone else for your own pleasure. And I think that's a message that we can really push in the church that 
uh, you should not be taking advantage of someone else by the way you look at them, by the way you touch them, or by having sex with them. Um, don't take advantage of them for your own pleasure. Uh, make sure that in a relationship, um, both people are being taken care of and um, the needs on both sides are being taken into account so that no one feels that they're being taken advantage of. I think that requires a lot of honesty and openness, and that can sometimes be really uncomfortable. I'd say this is a way that as well for women in the church, um, at least in the churches that I've been part of, it's often been the case that because women are told over and over that they are a temptation to their brothers, that they are to their Christian brothers, that they are leading men into sin by the way they dress or the way they look or the way they speak. Um, they're also women tend to be given the responsibility because of this idea that men are sexual creatures and they can't control themselves. So it's the responsibility of women to keep control and mm. to not let a relationship go where that shouldn't go. Um, but I think that that creates a lot of anxiety for women around sex. And so it's sometimes it might just take a little extra work to talk through these issues in a relationship and to reach agreements about comfort and what is good. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I guess let's just summarize. Is sex good? The Bible says sex and marriage is very good. Yes. Okay. All right. So let's move on from that to your own story. Uh, so as it relates to the Samaritan woman story, even as I was holding the book right here in my hands, Um, for people to see why is this such an important topic to you for sure you're into gender studies uh, but can you tell us a little bit about your personal story mm -hmm. when it comes to just your relationship with me too or church too or the mm -hmm. Samaritan mm -hmm. woman story mm -hmm. yeah so Um, I will say, first of all, that I have loved the Samaritan woman's story in John for such a long time, um, but I've also hated it a little bit because of the way that it's so often taught in the church to the denigration of the woman. Um, the story's turned into this message that we can be saved from our sexual sin. That's what the story is all about. And I don't think that that's what the story is about at all. And when we focus on sin and sex in the Samaritan woman's life, then we miss the fact that she is a model disciple and a leader in her community, someone who teaches about Jesus in her community. So she's a real model for women's leadership in Christian communities, um, not just for women, but for men as well, right? <laughs> she's a model disciple in John, um, and therefore she's important for men and women in the church to learn from in terms of her model. Um, so, I wanted to write about the Samaritan woman's story because I love her so much. And I think that she has a lot to offer to the church and a way to help us see um, just the diversity and the equality that existed in Jesus ministry and how we might think about ways that we have failed to maintain that, that um, diversity and equality through the history of the church. Um, When the Me Too and Church Too movements really took off, um, 
I realized that it was an issue that I hadn't been addressing in my classes necessarily. Um, this idea of um, sexual assault in the church, how do we see reflections of that in the New Testament? How could we learn from what Jesus says or Paul teaches um, to direct our own relationships today? And so I started incorporating different elements of the church to movement in particular into my classes. And my women students started telling me their stories of mm. assault and harassment and rape in the church. Um, and I realized that it's not just an issue for social media. It's an issue for my own community um, mm. and something that I really wanted to be able to speak into. And I think as a new Testament scholar, um, I've been lucky in my churches. Uh, I've experienced some of the harassment and unwanted comments that I think most women probably have experienced in their lives, but, uh, but I don't have my own church to story. Uh, but I want to speak on behalf of others who do have these stories. Um, and I wanted to speak to the church to call our attention to a way I think we have misread scripture, not just the Samaritan woman story, but a lot of stories about women get sexualized. So Mary Magdalene is represented as a prostitute who is repentant. Um, the woman who anoints Jesus feet and wipes them with her hair in Luke seven, she's often represented as a prostitute. Um, she's not a prostitute in the text. She's called a sinner, but prostitution is not the only way that one woman can sin, right? So why do we assume that she must be a prostitute? Um, yeah, so I think we have a problem with biblical interpretation here that we sexualize the women in the Bible and that teaches people in our churches that it's okay to sexualize women, that women's stories are only important when they revolve around issues of sex and usually sexual sin. Um, and that spills over into how we treat women in our churches. And I think the church to movement is, is one of the devastating results of that. Wow. I think so. So, okay. So thank you for sharing and being so vulnerable on where, where the story of this book comes from. And thank mm -hmm. you for voicing out these stories and for even, yeah, I think, I think to me, the key word here is listening. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about why you love the Samaritan woman. And, and I think when I read the story, one of my favorite elements of it is the whole interaction with, are we supposed to worship God here or in Jerusalem? Mm -hmm. or in, mm -hmm. And then Jesus answers, the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. So I mm -hmm. wanted to ask you, what do you think worshiping God in spirit and in truth means, especially in in the scenario of the Samaritan's woman and church too and me too. Mm -hmm. I think in that moment, um, so of course the Jews worshiped God in the temple in Jerusalem, the Samaritans, because they were not allowed to worship in the temple in Jerusalem, they worshiped on their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which happened to be overlooking the well where they're sitting at having this conversation. So it's right there. Um, And the idea there is, who are the true people of God? 
is it you who worship in Jerusalem or is it us who worship here on Mount Gerizim for the Samaritan woman? And Jesus answered, the true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. He's setting up a new identity for the people of God entirely. It's not Jewish. It's not Samaritan. It's something new. And in spirit and truth, of course, the Holy Spirit is important there. Um, Jesus is the truth in John's gospel. Um, we also have this idea, of course, in John's gospel, Jesus is God in human form. And so when you're in the presence of Jesus, you are in the presence of God in truth. <laughs> um, and so I think Jesus' comment there, he's saying, you don't have to go somewhere to worship because when you're in my presence, you are in the presence of God and you can worship, um, which is a revolutionary thing at the time. I think for us today, we think, of course you can worship God wherever you are. But in the first century, that really, there were more limited spaces for where worship could happen in particular ways. And so this was a really revolutionary statement. Um, yeah. And the woman's marital history doesn't matter in that situation. She is receiving this revelation because she has recognized who Jesus is and she has pursued him and pursued this revelation through their conversation. Um, I think Jesus giving her this grand statement of the, this new identity for who the people of God are, the fact that she's a woman is important there, not because she's some sort of terrible sexual sinner who needs to be forgiven, but because she's a Samaritan and a woman and so has sort of this double check mark against her that she doesn't have the status of um, of someone who of a Jewish man, for instance, someone who perhaps would be expected to be better educated, expected to understand what Jesus is saying. But it's the woman who recognizes what Jesus is saying. And she happens to be a Samaritan. And then she tells her entire village, there's a new way to be the people of God. It's the Jesus way of being the people of God. Um, it's a really revolutionary message in that first century context, I think. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I agree. <laughs> so, okay. I love that because my next and almost final question mm -hmm. before going from blasphemous to divine is, uh, okay. So I'm gonna, I love how you said she ended up like being a leader for, mm -hmm. for Jesus. She went and told the entire village about this man. Right. So mm -hmm. that in itself is like, wow, that's leadership. And that's a woman mm -hmm. and Jesus is affirming her. So that's amazing. So I wanted yeah. to pair this a little bit to the story of Job in mm. the oh. Old Testament. Okay, so here is how I, I kind of like portrayed it together. Job has like the worst life somebody can experience. Everybody dies in his family. Uh, and then Job gets to, in a sense, like complain or uh, at least announce his pain and hurt to God, right? And what I'm amazed by is that God listens through and through. Like he mm -hmm. listens to Job's complaint and yeah. lament and pain. But then God speaks too. And it's it's a massive, you know, it's like the last however many chapters in the book of Job is like God speaking, 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 speaking back at Job. So as I'm trying to pair these two scenarios, mm -hmm. what would you say would be 
the response of God? What what do you think? Like if God was listening to the cries of these women, what do you think would be God's answer back at mm. them? Mm. I think God hears those cries just as God heard Job's cries. I think sometimes we don't, just like Job, we don't understand what is happening to us and why it's happening to us, but God is there with us through that darkness. Um, I mean, in the story of the Samaritan woman, while I do not think that Jesus is accusing the woman of sexual sin, <clears throat> he does recognize the hardness of her life, that she has had this devastating history of multiple marriages, um, that she has whatever has happened to end those marriages. Um, it's not easy. She's had a very hard life and Jesus recognizes that and also recognizes who she is beyond the pain of those, of that history, right? He recognizes that she's a woman who can understand him, that she's a woman who will persist through this conversation and that she will be an evangelist on his behalf. Um, so In that story, I think we see a model of how um, God sees the heart. <laughs> God cares for um, God cares for women who are hurting, for men who are hurting, um, and and God can use us even despite some of the terrible things that we experience in life. Wow! All right. So. This is the time when you get to tell me with my emojis. I'll show them to you again on my virtual background. So you're going to get to tell me we're going to go from blasphemous to divine. Okay, so when it comes to the Me Too and the Church Too movement, what is the most blasphemous idea you can think of? Mm. A quote from Ruth Everhart's book, um, The Me Too... Ah, shoot, I'm forgetting the title of her book. But uh, Ruth Everhart, pastor, writes about the Me Too movement in the church. Um, she writes about a young woman who was raped during a Christmas Eve service in her church building, in the hallway of her church. Um, and she ends that story by saying, I wonder if the stranger who raped this woman had been taught to read scripture in a way that made women rapeable. And I think that question just devastates me. It has lingered with me. And I can't imagine anything more blasphemous than teaching people to read scripture in a way that makes women rapeable and leads to a situation where women are raped. Wow. I agree. Okay. So mm -hmm. what is the most skeptical idea you can think of or what are you skeptical of when it comes to the Me Too Church Too movement? Hmm. Skeptical, but also hopeful about whether we can weather the storm, right? Um, can we really be honest with ourselves about what we've done? And can we take on the immense work of making the church a better place, a more holy place, a safer space for all people to thrive um, in the faith? Love it. Okay, so moving on to Inspire Emoji. What inspires you 
when it comes to the Me Too Church or Church Too movement? It inspires me to hear people sharing their stories. Um, they are so courageous and so brave, the men and the women who have shared their stories of um, different experiences they've had in Christian communities and have pursued that even though they have been silenced or even though they have been ignored. Um, they have not remained silent. They have refused to remain silent. And that really inspires me, that courage. Love it. Okay, so next one would be Holy. So where do you see holy or holiness in this movement? Mm. I think that we are trying to do better. I think um, pastors like Ruth Everhart um, writing on the Me Too movement and talking to the church and calling the church to account. There are so many publications like that that have come out. I think there is a real attempt that's being made to listen to the people who are bringing these allegations and to shape a more um, a more faithful church that will will um, will protect people. Mm, love yeah. it. Okay, so finally, divine emoji. What is the most divine idea when it comes to even women in general? Mm. Jesus recognized women and Jesus authorized women to speak about him to others. His um, When he's talking to the disciples, when the Samaritan woman has left him and he's talking to the disciples and he they're asking him, why are you talking to a woman? What the heck is going on here? Well, we've been off buying food. And Jesus answers Um, with this um, sort of parable about the fields are ripe for the harvest. Other people have planted the seeds. Other people have tended the fields. And now the harvest is ready. The Samaritan woman is the one who's been doing that, right? She is leading the harvest back to Jesus as they speak um, the harvest of her fellow villagers. Um, Jesus recognizes women's voice. Jesus recognizes women um, and their significance to the kingdom of God. And I think that's divine. Love it. Okay. So finally is where can you point people to find more about your work, the, your writings, even your book? Yeah. So my book is available at innervarsitypress.com. Um, you can find out more about me at the Westmont College Religious Studies webpage. I have my own webpage there with a list of other things that I've written and done. All right. Thank you so much for being on the show. See you on the next one. So my friends, thank you for watching Christian podcast live three ways in which you can support the show. Number one, subscribe to our channel on Roku TV, the Spotify Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Facebook, whatever you might be listening or watching, and leave a positive review or write a comment. All right, that's one. Number two, visit ChristianPodcast.com and check out our emoji merch. Amazing emojis at ChristianPodcast.com. And finally, if you want to participate in the book giveaway, follow us on Instagram right now at XTN podcast x dian because i'm mexican so i said mexican (laughs) 
Uh, I'm just okay. XTM Podcast on Instagram. We'd love to see you there. See you guys on the next one. Mire, te Las esperanza del futuro.